invite you to turn with me to the 12th chapter of that book, to Genesis chapter 12, and there we'll pick up at verse 10. Genesis 12, verse 10. You uh, will remember that we have thus far followed Abram from Ur to Haran and Haran to Canaan. And along the way, we have found, looking through the spectacles of Scripture, that Abram is a sort of paradigmatic Christian. That is, he is an example of what a Christian is. The Scripture itself holds him out to us in that way. And he begins, as all of us who are in Christ uh, today, he begins by the grace of God. He uh, continues by faith, but scratch the surface of that faith and you only find more grace. We have found Abram to be a man of courage. In the midst of his enemies, Abram uh, built an altar and worshipped God. He is the pilgrim possessor of Canaan and by extension of the world. But you uh, may remember as well that I uh, warned you that it is not all roses. There are some thorns in the garden of Abram's life, and we come to some of them this morning. We get Abram in the scripture in all of his greatness, but we also get him in his weakness. The scripture gives us Abram, as it does all of the saints, uh, gives him to us warts and all, and this morning we come to a wart. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this too is your holy and inspired word. Your spirit caused it to be written. Your servant uh, Moses took it down in faithfulness. For all of these centuries, you have preserved this truth that today you may speak as clearly to us in your word as you did to your people in the wilderness who first heard this. We pray, our Father, therefore, that you will send your spirit here and that he will open our hearts and our ears and write this word upon our lives, that this too may govern our thoughts, our words, our deeds. For your glory we pray, and in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. How many sermons um, and studies find in this move to Egypt, uh, by the way, a sin on Abram's part. After all, was not, giving, uh, was not God giving the land of Canaan to Abram? Now what's he doing moving on to Egypt? Why not say, while in Canaan, God has sent me here and, and uh, food or uh, rather um, short, uh, shortness of food or no, I will be fed, I will be cared for. He will provide for me. Was it a sin that he moved to Egypt? Well, I am not uh, myself convinced uh, that it is. The Lord spoke to Abram in calling him to Canaan, but in so many things, as with us today, we're left to consider the providences of God and to weigh them and to make the best decision we can from the circumstances we face, measured, of course, by the principles uh, by which we must live. He might even have found here a kind providence that while there was famine in Canaan, there was water flowing in the Nile and feeding Egypt and uh, causing her to flourish uh, to the south. It is significant, however, 
that we have no record here of Abram seeking the face of God, no asking of the Lord for wisdom, guidance, or direction. Instead, he acts on his own wisdom. He goes on his own initiative, it seems. And as one commentator observed, he takes everything into account but God. And what is more, we are keenly aware that at the very least, in this move, from a certain point of view, the promise of God hangs in the balance. Uh, is put on hold, even. The land, the people, all of it stands in hazardous suspension while Abram sojourns over in Egypt. But what is even more captivating about this passage is what happens next. Perhaps it was part of his panic. Uh, maybe he was just thinking now apart from consideration of God's promises like you and I do so often. When, especially when we perform our most dunder-headed stunts. But uh, as Abram comes closer to Egypt, he realizes how beautiful his wife is. Maybe you wives wish that your husbands <laughs> recognize sometimes how beautiful you are. But Abram comes to a realization, my wife is very beautiful. And this is a threat to me and my well-being. And these jealous Egyptians, so he concocts a plan, verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. This is said by some to create something of a problem. Here is Sarai, some 65 years old, and yet beautiful in appearance. Now, how can this be? Well, it is a problem, I say to some. If you are a 65-year-old woman, you may not find any particular problem with uh, this. But uh, this would have been less problematic uh, in a day and age such as Abram uh, lived and the patriarchs, uh, when they lived much longer and so Sarai might well be here in the very prime of her womanhood, uh, like a woman today would be in her 30s and 40s. Uh, Kyle and Delich, in their classic commentary on the Old Testament, however, have a much more um, humorous explanation for explaining uh, this uh, danger and her beauty. She might easily appear very beautiful in the eyes of the Egyptians, Kyle and Delich write, whose wives, according to both ancient and modern testimony, were generally ugly and faded quickly. Whatever the case, here's the plan. Verse 13, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Doesn't it make you wonder when you hear that? What, 
what it must have been like for Abram, what must have run through his mind every time he heard through his tent the bleeding of those Egyptian sheep. Every bray of the donkey taken in exchange for his own wife must have been like Pharaoh's donkeys speaking his own language. What kind of a fool would jeopardize his own wife for this? But, verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you not say, why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. What are you thinking, Abram? We are tempted to half ask and half shout. What are you thinking? What are you doing? What do you mean by lying about your wife and acting so cowardly and putting her in so much danger? Can you even be a Christian and do such a low-down, despicable thing as this? But isn't Abraham or Abram telling the truth? Or at least some of it? Well, Abram is speaking a half-truth. She was his half-sister, so he is technically right. But here is, he is using part of the truth to conceal another part, which combined with a selfish motive to deceive and to save his own neck became nothing less than a lie. Pharaoh virtually says so himself, to which Abram has no reply, as we saw in verse 17. Well, what a slimy thing to do, we might say. Well, it is possible that in Abram's thinking, dim as it is, that this plan is really foolproof. And indeed, it may be that it was not, that he was not completely willing to hazard his wife's honor for the safety of his own skin. He might, for instance, have been expecting to fend off any suitors who came acting as her brother, or maybe to put them off without ever having to give her up in marriage to another. But Pharaoh turns out to be not just another suitor. And in the end, really, it matters little. The bottom line is, this was a slimy, despicable thing to do. He put his own wife, whom he was to love and honor and cherish. I say he put his own wife at great risk, told her to sin by lying for him, and all for one simple reason, for his own neck. It was a low-down act of cowardice by a man who had just recently been a sterling example of faith and of faithfulness. How can it be? How can a man like Abram do this? 
But we needn't ask the question very long before it turns right around on us. And we must ask it of ourselves. Forget blaming Abram. Look at the way I live and the things I do. Look at my own life, we must say. Look at me. Look at the way I can one day walk closely with the Lord, love his word, bask in his approving smile on my meager obedience, and then turn around sometimes the very same day and do some of the things I do and think the things I think and say the things I say. How can it be? Forget asking whether Abram is any kind of a Christian. The question is, am I? Am I? How can it be that I heard that word come across my lips? How can it be that I thought that thought and that I think it every day and must not ask myself how much more despicable can I possibly become? The fact is this has been the saint's struggle since the entrance of sin into the world. We heard Paul even this morning in the assurance of pardon say from his tortured heart and that near the end of such a godly life and ministry, what a wretched man I am. It was not exaggeration for effect. This was no hyperbole. It is merely the truthful expression of a man who as he comes closer into the light of the holiness of God sees his sin more boldly in relief in contrast to God's purity. He could not possibly excuse his sin by saying, oh well, everybody does it. You who are serious in your faith know that such thoughts only make matters worse. You know exactly what Rabbi Duncan, the Scott Presbyterian missionary and scholar, meant when he observed that the fact that everyone is a sinner is the hypocrite's bed of ease, but it is the believer's bed of thorns. Last weekend, our family went and visited the exhibit now in Lexington called Blood and Ink. It's a collection of Bible artifacts and antiques spanning 2,000 years from the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, to the King James Bible and beyond. The point of the exhibit is expressed perfectly by its name, Blood and Ink. It is the history of the preservation and the transmission of God's word from one generation to another, even at the cost of shedding blood, their own blood. And as we made our way through the exhibit, we recollected one great Christian hero after another, living and then dying heroically for the Lord and for his word. 
I'll admit, though, I was somewhat disappointed when we came to an exhibit about the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, whose prayer we used just this morning in the Confession of Our Sin. They have his picture, the picture of Cranmer, as it was published in early editions of Fox's Book of Martyrs, dying in the flames at the stake, but holding his hand out into the flames. And I was glad to see him there, important as his contribution has proven to the Reformation and the spreading of the word, especially in England, to the salvation of unnumbered souls. He stood up against the false doctrines of Rome in England in a way we could only dream of standing for truth ourselves. But the episode of his life's end, missing from the exhibit, is what makes that picture of him holding his hand in the flames so poignant. Faithful as Cranmer was, like Abram, yet witnessing the tortures that took place under Mary Tudor, we know her as Bloody Mary for the Protestant blood she shed far and wide. I say witnessing those tortures and particularly the agonizing death of his fellow prisoner, Nicholas Ridley, Cranmer broke and he signed a recantation of the faith. It was a dark day for the church. It was an even darker day for Archbishop Cranmer. But even after recanting, he would still be put to death. And in the burning, hold out his hand, as in the picture in the exhibit at Lexington. But here is the significance of his having held out his hand in the flames, as told by one of his best biographers. The crowd arrived at the place where Latimer and Ridley had suffered six months before. Fire was put to the wood. In the flames, Cranmer achieved a final serenity, and he fulfilled the promise which he had made in his last shouts in the church. He had made some um, public comments uh, recanting his recantation uh, right there at the stake. Fulfilled the promise which he had made in his last shouts in the church. For as much as my hand offended writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall be first punished, therefore. And he stretched it out into the heart of the fire for all of the spectators to see. And he repeated while he could his unworthy right, right hand. This hand hath offended. And also while he could, the dying words of the first martyr, Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And brothers and sisters, I am confident, beyond confidence, that he did. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, maybe so you can appreciate the exhibit better should you get to Lexington in the next couple of weeks before it leaves, but here is the point. The great Cranmer, the faithful steward of the mysteries of God, courageous minister, shepherd of the flock, this giant of the faith, nonetheless, Cranmer stumbled for a time. He denied his Lord, like Peter did. 
He failed his heavenly father miserably. But in the end, his hand was first in the flame. And he was restored by the grace of God. And to this day, we know him not as the recanting coward, Cranmer, but as the great Archbishop of Canterbury. And we count it a great privilege to worship God using the very same words in our prayers. One voice with him who is in heaven, who, though dead, yet speaks. Those days of his recantation, that brief period of turning tail on the truth, that was but a short time during which he suffered what is, alas, common to every one of us Christians. A sort of spiritual schizophrenia. No one could have expected it from Cranmer. No one could have expected it from Abram, for that matter, nor from David, the man after God's own heart, that he would sleep with another man's wife and then turn right around and murder that man. Nor Noah, saved from the flood, spared with his family, who then goes out and gets blind drunk and shames himself. Nor from Peter, the rock, who melts like wax in front of a girl, a servant girl, and denies the Lord. The fact is, we could spend the rest of this morning supplying one example after another after another of the saints in Scripture and outside of it throughout the entire history of the church whose lives were marked by the same condition as ours. And what makes it so terrible is that all the while we, we know because the Spirit lives in us, we know that the, we do not do the good we want. But the evil we do not want, that we keep doing. Martin Luther, who himself lived a life like this, on the one hand heroically leading the Reformation through indefatigable writing and preaching and lecturing and ministering, while also at the same time a man who could throw temper tantrums act like a child and be so peevish from time to time. I say Martin Luther called this condition simul justus et peccator. At the one and same time righteous and a sinner. He was speaking of the fact that though we continue to sin, we are yet perfectly righteous in Christ. We're justified by his blood. But he also meant that while we live in this world as Christians, we are at one and the same time men and women of faith and men and women whose faith often fails. But here's the encouragement. What does God do with Abram? What does he do with Abram? Does, does, does God say, oh well, let him rot in Egypt. Let him have his donkeys and his sheep and his male servants and his female servants. I'll find someone else. No. God takes sinners. He takes people who are simul justus et peccator at the same time 
justified and sinners. He takes spiritual schizophrenics. He takes you and he raises you up from the ash heap of your own sin time and time and time again. Brushes you off, causes you to persevere in the faith despite your despicable behavior, despite your damnable return to the mire of your own sin again and again. He takes and he washes you and he purifies you and he forgives you and he renews you again and again and again and again and again. We find no excuse here for our sin. None whatsoever. Neither Abraham's nor certainly our own. Absolutely none. Looking upon Abram's sin here, our hearts rise up in hatred, not so much for his sin, but for ours. We are steeled by this to battle against our sin, to wage war against anything that makes fools out of us as it did our father Abram there in Egypt. I say we find no excuse, but what we find is hope and joy and assurance and peace for our souls. Because on two levels, at least two, our almighty Lord works all these things for good. Yes, even, dare we say it, even our sin, he works for good. For one, God takes and causes his redemptive purposes to be worked out, even despite our sin. Even sovereignly weaving into sinful situations, his purposes. Through Abram's sin, God actually brought about blessing prospering him with animals and servants and possessions from the house of Pharaoh itself. All of this but contributed to the advancement of the kingdom of God and to making the promises true to bless Abram and to make of him a great nation. It is in no way an excuse for his sin. It is in no way to diminish the sinfulness or the shamefulness of it. It does not change the fact that he will stand and give answer for it, as we all will, for every deed done in the body, whether good or evil, on the day of judgment. And in no way diminished his own pain and personal shame. Can you imagine with every step back to Canaan from Egypt, how he must have stared at the ground? And not been able to even lift his head to look Sarai straight in the face. But feel her glare as they walked along whom he had betrayed so deeply. But notice in the scripture God turning the sin of the saints into his own means for extending mercy and grace through his covenant of redemption. This is nothing but the goodness of God at work that he forms roses out of dung. That he advances his purposes not only through our obedience, but even, but even our turning in disobedience, the unfolding still of his redemptive purposes, his redemption. And then on a more personal level, look at the way our loving Father treats us. Even us, sinful as we are, to the core. Consider Abraham. How is he spoken of in Scripture? 
Think about the way he's described in the Bible. What is God's own verdict? Does he hold Abram before us as an example of cowardice, foolishness, evil? Does he say in the book of Hebrews 2,000 years later, don't imitate Abraham in his foolishness? Is that what he says? Remember his sin in Egypt? Is that what God recalls to our minds? No. He calls Abram the father of all who believe. He calls him a friend of God. He holds Abram out to us as an example that we should follow him in our faith and life. He says of Abraham that he is not ashamed to be called Abraham's God. Nor is he ashamed to be called your God. You, even you and I, even through this veil of tears, even as we live and breathe sin every day, though we hate it, though we repent of it all the while, I say he is not ashamed to be called your God. Nor does he hold your sins against you, but he removes them from you as far as the east is from the west. He does not call you sinners. That's not your name anymore. Your name is now saints, holy ones. Here is Christopher Love, the great Puritan preacher in a passage, I think, of all the passages outside of the scripture I've come to love the most. Listen to this and take it to heart. It's the lesson of Abraham and it's a lesson of every Christian life. Look not so much on your own sins, or rather on your sins. Look no, not so much on your sins, but look upon your grace also, the weak. Weak Christians look more on their sins than they do on their graces. Yet God looks on their graces and overlooks their sins and infirmities. The Holy Spirit said, you've heard of the patience of Job? He might also have said, you've heard of the impatience of Job. But God reckons his people not by what is bad in them, but by what is good in them. Mention is made of what was well done and what was amiss is buried in silence, or at least is not recorded against him and charged upon him. Oh, it is good to serve such a master who is ready to reward the good we do and is ready to forgive and pass by what is amiss. Therefore, you who have but little grace Yet remember that God will have his eye on that little grace. He will not quench the smoking flax, nor break the bruised reed.
even spiritual schizophrenics such as we are are in Christ called the children of God. We are called friends of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are called his chosen ones. We are called his holy people. Amen.